Hello and welcome to SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today my guest is the journalist, commentator and author David Goodhart. David and I discuss how Britain's education system focuses too much on generating cognitive elites, the societal ramifications of this, and why we should turn away from this mentality. I hope you enjoy the show. So I'm with author, political thinker, and head of demography at the policy exchange think tank, uh, David Goodhart. Um, now, a few years ago, 2017, David wrote a very influential book called The Road to Somewhere, which was so influential it actually changed the political lexicon, and we started using the words uh, somewheres and anywheres. Um, but Dave's got a new book out uh, called Head, Hand and Heart, uh, and I'm here to discuss it with him. So, David, first question. Um, hmm. What's the premise of the new book? What's it about? Well, as you say, it's kind of part two to The Road to Somewhere. The Road to Somewhere was mainly about the value divides created partly by the new educational stratification, residential universities and so on, the value divides that had led to... Um, to modern political alienation and Brexit, Trump, European populism was mm. a kind of expression of that. And this, this mm. in a way, is part two of that, trying to dig down, trying to understand why it is that so many people in apparently uh, in otherwise quite successful societies feel really pretty pissed off. Mm. Uh, and I think, well, I mean, the, the, the explanation is partly in the title, mm. <laughs> that, you know, particularly in the last 30 or 40 years, I mean, you could say this is something that goes back from the beginning of civilization, the fact that yeah. we particularly honour the sort of purity of rational thought and and the body is seen as a site of, of sort of temptation and corruption and so on, mm. you know, I mean, reinforced by Christianity. But no, I mean, the, but the point is, just in the last 30 or 40 years, we have allocated a you know, hugely disproportionate amount of prestige and indeed reward, you know, mm. returns to qualification, to just one form of human aptitude, mm. cognitive, analytical kind of exam-passing ability, mm. Oh, you know, which is a vital human aptitude, you know, don't get me wrong, high intelligence is, uh, you know, is absolutely vital, probably more vital than ever before for the human species, you know, we need to work, teams of clever people need to, you know, create a vaccine for yeah, COVID yeah. and learn how to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and so on and so mm. forth. Um, that, that's, not, that's not an issue. Um, but we have created, in, in, partly through the, the huge helter-skelter expansion of higher education, in the last 30 or 40 years, a massive sort of cognitive bureaucracy. Yeah. Many people who, who, who go into higher education who are no more able uh, mm. than the people who don't often mm. Mm. Um, end up in the kind of middling and lower ranks of, the, of this kind of expanded cognitive class. Mm. Um, they feel, they end up feeling, you know, because these things obviously have diminishing returns. They, yeah. they end up feeling pissed off um, and, they, you know, their expectations aren't being met by the kind of lower level um, sort of administrative work they may be doing. Meanwhile, mm. we have absolutely massive uh, um, skill shortages in the skilled trades and in the particularly the kind of missing middle, the kind of higher technical yeah, manual yeah. functions. And we have these, the, the, this massive recruitment crisis in, in the care sector. Mm. So we've just got things out of kilter. Mm. Um, and it's partly because, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the, the liberal graduate anywhere worldview is very, very oriented towards cognitive priorities mm. um, and almost everybody in the higher echelons of politics and economics and, and culture has been through 
you know, a mainly residential university system. Their children yeah. have, you know, it's just become so much the, the sort of the common sense of what it is to lead a successful life. Yes, yeah, so there's an extent to which uh, the sort of cognitive elite, the people that have been through university, just see the world in those terms and then start wanting to reproduce more of that because they think that's success and they, they forget about the other side of the tennis net, don't they? Well, I, I think so, yes, and it's just that the definition of a successful life has, has kind of has become very narrow. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it involves you know, getting into the A-level stream at school, going to more or less good university, having a more or less successful probably cognitive professional career mm. and you know th there is simply more to life than that I mean mm. there are there is a you know broader scale of worth there are different scales of worth and there are you know, ext you know absolutely vital and fulfilling aptitudes associated with you know with other parts of the human body yeah, um, yeah. you know the, the heart and the hand and yeah. and I do think the um, you know we used to have you know not only has the definition of a successful life narrowed but the kind of the path into it has become go to university. Yeah, one ladder you know, up. One ladder. Yeah, and there used yeah. to be lots of little ladders. Mm. And there used to be, you know, people who didn't do well at school, if they were capable, you know, they would be spotted and they, you mm. could have promotion from below mm. in ways that are now mm. impossible. You know, 40% mm. of jobs in the economy are graduate only, and that mm. is expanding. Mm. So the whole, the whole system has got out of kilter, but it's on a kind of automatic pilot. Mm. More kids than ever before are going to go to university mm. this year. Okay, that's mm. partly to do with the pandemic. Mm. But we have a higher education system that is no longer... I mean, you know, we do higher education well. I'm not suggesting we should close all the universities. Mm. But we have over-expanded, and they're on... Because they're, they're, they are private corporations. I mean, yeah. they, they are not... It's in their interest to promote not themselves. Just, yeah. I mean, they are partially acting in the public interest, but they're not only acting in the public interest. They have their own, yeah. you know, the, their own vested interests. The more students they have, the more income they have, yeah. the more courses they can put on, and, the, and in their view, that means the more innovation and, you know, the, the more useful sort of production of knowledge there they are making available. But the truth is, only a tiny proportion of people, even in universities, are actually producing new knowledge. Yeah. You know, the, the rest of the cognitive class is sort of piggybacking on this, you know... The, it's a rite of passage to some extent, isn't well, it? Well, also, yeah. Well, they, they, don't you think, I mean, if we look at it... So I, I, I totally agree with you. There's sort of, uh, you know, far, far too many people going to university, and that has costs. So if you look at the cost, the consequence of the policy... Um, there are two, really, aren't there? There's a the consequence of people that are going through that system, being funneled through that system, and you have a problem with expectations. Can they match what they've yeah. uh, been given to, to, to believe they might get? Uh, and then there's also an opportunity cost, because you're putting resources into one particular type of education, neglecting vocational and skills training and other things. Do you think that's a fair appraisal? Yeah, I, I think it is. And... Um... You know, I mean, I'm sometimes accused of you know wanting to sort of kick away the ladder. You know, if you if you talk about wanting to restrict entry into higher education, you 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 get you know you get this sort of uh, elitist um, accusation thrown back at you. But but it seems to me the assumption, you know, it, as you say, is based on the experiences of the existing elite, many of whom went to university, by the way, when it was a much more elitist mm. and perhaps in some ways more valuable experience. Mm. It was before. The diminishing returns had set in, mm. um, and they are comparing their experience with the with the current experience, which, as you say, is leading to a crisis of expectations yeah. for many young people. They expect they go to university, they, they do what they think they've been told to do, 
and they, you know, they get a, a, a decent degree from a reasonable university, and then they find they're doing a twenty-two grand a year job, you know, in the back office. Somewhere. That they could have done without going to university. exactly, you know, that the, their non non graduate peers could have easily done that job. Indeed, their non graduate parents might easily have done the same kind of job, and that is, I think, one of the explanations for some of the recent political eruptions, like sort of Bernie Sanders in America, yeah. even the kind of Corbyn momentum movement. Uh, you know, a lot of disappointed yes. kind of middle class, lower middle class kids, you know, who thought they were entering this yeah, zone yeah. of safety and success yes, yes. to find they're not. They thought they were going to get dividends that they're not going to get. And actually, yeah. I think the, the actual term people talk about, you know, a mass elite or you know, hmm. elite overproduction. I don't think you can have a mass elite in that sense. I mean, it's a contradiction, complete contradiction. And what they're doing is um, giving people expectations that they can't possibly uh, fulfill. And I think mm. there's a, probably a very, very long tail effect. Certainly, I agree with you on the political uh, consequences in terms of political extremism. Um, Michael Lynn's very good on this. Mm. Uh, and his recent essays about the um, BLM movement in the States and the uh, you know, political upheavals you see in places like Portland, mm. actually, it's not mm. driven by uh, working-class Americans. No. It's dri driven by over-educated, under-occupied, Mm. Uh, rather mm. privileged people who are really quite angry. I remember mm. I did a, about 10 years ago when I was at the University of Durham, I did a bit of work on youth bulge theory. And, uh, you know, the link between youth bulges, particularly North Africa and the Middle East, and political violence. And it's very interesting that the Erdl and the other academics that looked at it in detail uh, always saw a plus V for education in terms of political violence. Really? It's yeah, very yeah. interesting. <clears throat> so, mm. Yeah, we educate people, they won't become violent and unhappy. Mm. Actually, that's certainly not true of youth bulge theory. Yeah. Um, but there is a bigger consequence, isn't it? We, we neglect all of the other things, you know, yeah. vocational yeah. training. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a sort of naivety, uh, you know, about and, and a belief in, in, the, uh, in the sort of productive power of higher education mm. that is simply not borne out by the facts. You know, look at what's been happening to productivity. Mm. Look also um, at what's been happening to social mobility. I mean, the, the idea, you know, I mean, if, if, if you're seeing universities as a sort of machine of social mobility, then you should close them all down tomorrow mm. because they have become, in the last 20, one of the reasons, all the serious social mobility analysts will mm. say one of the reasons for the slowdown mm. in social mobility has been the, the middle class and upper middle class monopolization of That's higher right. education. Now, it's true, you know, if you have sort of quite a few working class kids these days go to university too, mm. uh, but that is not a justification for, you know, continuing to expand a, a, a form of education that has become increasingly redundant. I mm. mean, the knowledge economy turns out not mm. to need that many knowledge no. workers. And uh, it won't look no. through the curve. I mean, this is why, yeah. I mean, my book, I mean, when I started writing the book, I thought this is actually rather a kind of idealistic notion, the idea of sort of shifting status mm. from mm. head to hand and heart, even slightly new agey, mm. um, reinforced by my discovery that head, hand and heart turns out to be the motto of Beedale School, mm. uh, the progressive English public school. Um, but um, the more I researched it, the more I looked into these things, the more I realised that in a way this is going to, it's got to happen. It's going to happen anyway mm. because the knowledge economy doesn't need so many knowledge workers. Uh, and this is even before AI comes along. Mm. Mm. You can see it in all, we, we have the signal of the declining graduate income premium and it's collapsed for many mm. people, particularly those going to non-elite universities. You have 30% yeah. of graduates not in graduate employment, uh, you know, even five to ten years after. And, you know, if you look at the shrinkage, well it's not shrinking yet, but the, mm. the lack of expansion of the, the sort of managerial professional class. Go back yeah. to 2000, mm. the, the, the proportion of 
people in the top two classes, basically kind of higher and lower managerial mm. and professional class, was a, was quite high. It was about thirty five percent of the population. Mm. In, in in last year, it was just touching thirty seven percent. So it's essentially static. Mm. Um, mm. And yet, we're, we're you know we have these machines called universities producing more and more mm. people for you know that that form of employment. It's not socially useful. I mean, that's, well, that's my point. Some of it is. I mean, no, the, no, at the very the highest scale, level. The scale. Yeah, the scale. scale, scale. Has been, and that's no, the point. Indeed. And the yeah. opportunity cost to, to, yeah. to neglect other. I mean, I'm interested in why. Why do you think <clears throat> vocational <clears throat> skills and training and, and, and the heart areas have been uh, neglected by policymakers? I mean, you could, we could, everyone's aware of the graduatization of politics. Mm. Because, you know, um, you know, I think the last Prime Minister possibly didn't, didn't go to university with Jim Callaghan, probably. Mm. And, mm. and there were roots. There were always roots. But the, that occupation, policymakers come from a, an entirely graduatized thing. Mm. And um, I think it's inevitable that they, they just aren't aware of other needs. So they, they neglect what they're not in contact with. And I think the neglect of, of basic skills yeah. training, because the skills, the lack of skills in this, in this particular yeah. economy has been known for a long time, but policymakers have done nothing about it. Why are they indifferent to it? Yeah, I, I think it is partly a cultural thing. I mean, the, the sort of cultural domination of a, of a kind of uh, you know, Oxbridge, um, you know, as the sort of pinnacle of success and achievement and seeing everything in a sort of hierarchy below that. Um, I think we're probably, uh, we'll hear, and I think the United States share that, mm. those sort of cultural biases, less so in continental Europe, in the Germanic countries, the Scandinavian countries, there is more historic mm. valuation of, uh, of kind of practical intelligence yeah. and craft yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and so on. Um, and I think uh, but I mean, these things can be reversed. I think this is a this is. I mean, it is also I think a, a, you know a decent spirit of not wanting to kick away the ladder. The feeling that I I benefited from this experience um, that there is something privileged about it. You know, can't everybody have it? Well, no. I mean, just logically, not everybody can have it. But the neglect, David, the neglect of the other side. Yeah, uh, that I, th Absolutely. I think there's a real link. But if you look at the composition of Parliament. Yeah, well, that, that's true, and that's, particularly the Labour Party. I mean, yeah, the fact that yeah. Tony Blair was able to make that speech in 1999 yeah. saying 50% of school leavers should go to university. Mm. I mean, it, it, you know, the lack of emotional intelligence, mm. it's what I call the 15-50 problem. Yes, you, you know, When 15% of people in your class or town go to university and you don't, it doesn't really matter, you go and work in a local office or factory, mm. uh, life goes on. But if, if nearly 50% do and you don't, then it's a completely different psychological ballgame. And nobody around Tony Blair, attached to the mm. party that's meant to represent the working class, or was mm. then, mm. it didn't just didn't seem to. No, it didn't them. have a flicker. Uh, no, they didn't. Uh, they didn't see that at all. They didn't, no. they, and their focus wasn't on that. They thought it was a, you know, a, a social mobility. Um, yeah, uh, uh, and and yeah, I mean, the, you, you go back to the seventies. We do, you know, we had a reasonably well functioning set of alternatives to higher education. Mm. You know, you could do BTECs at school. You had, we had polytechnics that gave some prestige to the sort of higher, higher manual technical skills. And focused on those as well. Yeah. And that was what they did. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then, the, you know, this sort of cultural draw, you know, that the polytechnics were desperate for the extra prestige associated mm. with the classical university experience. Mm. I mean, like I say, I mean, I'm not in favour of closing universities down, no. but shrinking. But well, and and creating, we are we're outliers mm. in higher education in two respects. One, the the proportion of people we send to mm. residential universities, yes. which I think does have an, you know, I mean, I wrote about yes. that a little in the road to somewhere. I think it has yes. certainly has had a 
an influence on the value divides. You know, you join a complete. You you, you know, you're no longer you no longer continue to be friends with the you know the plumbers and electricians who who you, you might have gone to school with. It creates the that, great that, divide. It's, it's this idea that you, to get on, you've got to get out. Yeah, that's yeah, the, that's that's the uh, point. And it's, it's very harmful for the hinterland towns that lose their very best. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And, and Michael Merrick's made a point actually. I think it was probably tongue in cheek actually, but he said. You know, at the moment we pay people the very best to leave, yeah. you know, Rotherham or, or yeah. uh, Blythe, whatever. We pay them to get out. Yeah. Have you thought about paying them to stay? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I make that point yeah. in, in my book, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just to level out the, the, the playing field. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, not only do we reward people, you know, we have a far higher subsidy. Mm. All of the, you know, everything is so simple if you're, if you're going down the university path. There's this great motorway with huge signs on it and great... <laughs> Financial incentives. I mean, we mm. subsidise higher education even with tuition fees. We subsidise mm. it thanks to the generous loan scheme. Far a more than scheme. We, we, we subsidise it far more than other forms of post-school education. Yeah. And actually, the great thing about the Boris Johnson speech the other day is saying, you know, mm. we're going to level that. Yes. You know, so everybody yes. can be entitled to a three, four-year mm. uh, loan mm. for, for any kind of post-school mm. education. I think that's a really, really mm. important mm. speech and really big. The most important speech about higher education since Blair's fifty mm. percent speech in nineteen ninety nine. Interesting. I mean, well, Blair's less very interesting because it's, uh, it's not well known. I'm pretty sure I'm right that um, the Blair government in the first term till two thousand one actually spent less on education as a percentage of GDP than the major government did because of a little. You had a little bit of economic growth. Check it. I think it's true. Yeah. Uh, can I just return to one thing? I just want to link it because I'm interested in why we've neglected. Trade mm. and craft and the right. Why why hasn't there been enough political pressure mm. to get those things done to train kids? Now I think uh, one of the reasons was the the model that we operated. Certainly when we were in the European Union, was a model based on uh, open access and a large labour market of, of six hundred million people. And I think they just government successive governments mm. uh, simply relied on the size of that market and the mobility of labour to neglect domestic or domestically focused training. So we didn't bother mm, to train anyone because mm. we would always lean on high levels of immigration to, to fill the gaps. And mm. I think the political problem was yeah. that the people that had their feet held to the fire with that were, yeah. were uh, people with fewer skills. Mm. And I, think, I don't think that would have happened to the same extent if, for example, if, if British lawyers were held to the same... Uh, think I, and I think that's yeah. a political problem. I think so. I think to some extent, it's linked to. I mean, I, there's no doubt. I, I'm, uh, you know, sort of take a centre-left view on this. I think a very large labour market, open labour market, will depress wages, and mm. I think it certainly acts as a disincentive yeah. to train. I think uh, immigration has been part of the story. I think the decline of trade unions. Trade unions were always um, great defenders mm. of skill. Partly in a rather reactionary way of sort of skill differentials. Mm. Uh, indeed, it's one, one of the reasons why the Conservative government in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, David Willits was actually in the front line of this, mm. um, you know, now the architect of the modern university system. I mean, he helped destroy the traditional apprenticeship system. Yes. Partly because, for, on the reasonable grounds, that, that, that the apprenticeship system was producing skills that were no longer necessary. And, the, and this whole shift towards, away from specific skills for specific industries, Towards general skills, and it mm. and it fitted also with the sort of shift towards child-centered progressive education. You know, the, the, the sort of the teaching of these sort of general skills. Mm. You know, mm. um, critical thinking and, mm. and and all of these mm. kinds of mm. um, um, fashionable things. It sort of fitted into that that generalist notion of 
being being prepared for a life of constant change, um, and you know, a, a, an overwhelmingly service economy where these these kind of manual technical skills they're are massive. a little bit passe but they, anyway. But they they sat on a skills gap and did nothing about it. And I, I think there's political salience in it because I think the the interests that would have been should have been represented by yeah. the party simply weren't. Yeah, I mean that's one of one of the reasons. I mean certainly if you put an advert if you if you advertise for a a fully competent uh, mechanical engineer on Tyneside now, um, you will get very old, you'll get applicants from very older mm. sort of marine engineers in their 50s and 60s, mm. you know, time served. Uh, and then you'll have, you know, some, some European immigrants, but you'll have very, mm. very few yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, young and, Brits that have the skills and, and to, to, change, yeah, to no, change a pipe. And it's not, you know, and, and this isn't that hard to fix. I mean, no. I, mean I think it, it is one of those things that's been neglected for all sorts of cultural reasons, perhaps that not, not enough people are impacted at any given time. I mean, it's perhaps a little bit like social care. You know, why mm. have we mm. spent sort of 20 mm. years before really putting our back into reforming social care? And similarly mm. with this. But I think this government does seem to have the bit between its teeth on mm. this. It's part of the levelling up agenda. You know, it's, it, you know, it's how do we produce more people with these level four, so-called level four or five skills, you know, the European jargon, but level three is A-levels, yes. level six is a bachelor's degree. Yes. Yeah. It's these kind of higher technical, like HMDs, HNCs, hundreds of thousands of people used to do these, uh, and now it's down to a few tens of thousands every year. So we, and, and, and yet industry is crying out for, one of the reasons why, apparently why the testing system mm. is, testing mm. system is working very well, it's because we, yeah, we lack yeah. the kind of white-coated lab technicians. Of course. Um, well, you well, have degree holders doing that job. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Either that, or you have yeah. you have, you have people, you know, you have academic scientists doing the job who end up not being very good at it. I mean, mm. this is Paul Lewis at mm. King's is very good mm. on this because mm. they have expectations of doing kind of higher cognitive yeah. work and not doing, you know, but a lot, a lot of work in a laboratory is pretty routine stuff, mm. and you have to be, you know, you have to have to to to, to have expectations that fit the work yes, that exactly. you're doing. Otherwise, you'll do it quite badly. Yeah, yeah. I, d I think you're, I mean, I think there's no doubt at all there's been a skills gap and, and, and the over-expansion of, we, you know, the, 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 the universities has been a mistake uh, and it's cost others. The interesting thing, I'm, when you speak, when you hear Willits and Andrew Adonis the other day, having a blind spot to just the basic concept of opportunity cost in this. They just don't get that if you, if you put government resources into yeah. higher education, yeah. it might cost you elsewhere. And they could flat... Yeah. Well, well, and very naively, yeah. they sort of say, but look, all the kids are choosing it. Well, of course it's they're choosing it, but the, the choice there. is constrained and incentivized. Yeah. You know, as I was saying earlier, there's this massive, clear you know, motorway towards it. Yeah. You know, it, all, the, all the economic and the, and the cultural signals are pointing you towards it. So why wouldn't you do it? What's more, you know, because of the residential, the fact that we're overwhelmingly residential. I was going to say earlier, by the way, the, you know, the two things were outliers. One is residential. Mm. Um, you know, and who wouldn't want to leave your home and and find and, themselves? Yeah, yeah, three years. Yeah. You know, taxpayers' expense partly. Yeah. Uh, you know, having fun. Um, you know, and, and kids, particularly if they're doing humanities degrees, you know, basically forget everything they've ever learnt there anyway. Mm. But they, but but it is a it is a wonderful experience. It's a rite of passage and a growing experience. And they, yeah. 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 Uh, and and I think one of, one of the questions is how can we? And it's a valuable thing too. Mm. I mean, I think you know, David Soski is one of the architects mm. of the fifty percent target. Mm. Sort of now says that actually. It's not so much what you learn at university, it's the experience of being there, learning to get on with, with people very different from you, from different mm. social classes, mm. ethnicities even, and 
and, and learning the sort of political skills, you know, how to set up a university society and so on. But, but perhaps we should be thinking about how to make those kinds of experiences available to people that don't want to... But, because residential universities are also very expensive, mm. they have a high cultural mm. cost, so mm. how, can, how can we think of other ways of having that experience? But, sorry, but just to finish, the, the, the other way in which we are very much outliers in sort of global higher education, or certainly in rich countries, is the kind of undifferentiated nature of our higher education. So, you know, most mm. countries still have kept some version of the polytechnics. Mm. They may technically be classified as universities, like the Fachhochschule in Germany are technically universities, but they are, mm. but they're, they're not. I mean, mm. they and they have a many of those people doing those courses. You can mm. do it while you're working. You can do sandwich courses. You can do it part time. You have that extra flexibility, which our rigid three, four year. Um, classical academic yeah. bachelor degree taught by academics, most of whom want to be doing their research and not teaching. Mm. Uh, you know, it's full time, uh, and it's and it's and too far too much of it is focused on mm. eighteen, nineteen year olds, mm. um, often many of whom aren't uh, mature enough to appreciate it. Far better to go off and oh, and maturity is a problem. You ask, you speak anyone at the universities there, the first year, uh, they don't really put much in no. because the kids are so so young no I'm, I'm confident about our ability to correct this and rejig it mm. so you're out of kilter you can rejig it by reducing one sector slightly and just concentrating on well, and adapting so I think we can it, do that repurposing yeah. you know repurposing the universe, you know some of the universities to you know to in a sense take them back to what they were doing when they were polytechnics yeah. and that you know that, that's not impossible and that's kind of what the, you know the government's got this white paper on further yeah. education coming yeah. up so one of the you know I'm actually working on a paper at policy exchange at the moment on you know who should be delivering four and five? Mm. Should it be FE mm. or should it be mm. HE? I mean, I think in a way it should be both. Mm. It's kind of horses for courses, depending mm. where you are in the country. But that, you know, that, that we need to get them to collaborate. And a lot of the incentives in mm. the post-school education system at the moment make it very hard for institutions to collaborate. And mm. you get duplication and... Well, they um, don't talk to each other, actually, even locally. Well, and, and culturally, obviously, yeah. the HE people are kind yeah. of far superior. You know, they have the power, they have the degree yeah. awarding powers that many FE colleges don't have. So, you know... But I'm still, I'm, I'm confident we can, we can make progress on this. I, I think public mm. policy can do that. What, I just want to talk to you about a, a, a more difficult problem in a way, which is the cultural problem. Because I think the, in terms of what we value in society, what we, how we value people and what they do, I think that's very downstream of culture anyway. So I think any adaptation to, to, to seriously value uh, what we do with our hands mm. uh, to a greater extent uh, and, and what, how caring professions are considered and caring in general. Mm. How do you, how, how, how can, I mean, will, will some of this just adapt naturally uh, uh, or, or yeah. do you think there's something we can do culturally to? Well, I, I think it will happen naturally. It'll happen partly because it'll have to happen. Um, and to, I mean, the status is not, um, you know, in the gift of politicians to distribute, no. except to the extent that status follows the money. To some yes. extent, you know, politicians do have some influence over relative incomes and minimum wages and things like that. And then I think, you know, because there will just simply be a huge demand for more caring jobs. We're going to have to make those jobs more attractive. Yes. Um, yes. Partly for, I mean, the, the, you know, we have these huge recruitment crises in both in, in classical nursing, but also in, in the more sort of Cinderella service of the adult social care. Partly because for the benign reason that women now have many more options than they mm. did 30 or 40 mm. years ago, mm. when, you know, most able women ended up as teachers or nurses. Mm. Uh, and now, you know, they can be partners in city law firms. Um, and, and, and that means that, um, that there are fewer women doing those jobs and men haven't on the whole stepped into the breach to do them. Mm. Um, but I do think, I mean, I think, 
you know, the the you know cultures do change sometimes very mm. quickly. You mm. know, mm. I mean, you know, mm. Britain was meant to be this very sort of social democratic, uh, collectivist sort of union dominated society in the nineteen seventies, and suddenly it was a kind of entrepreneurial Thatcherite society. You know, within but a lot I mean, of that, yeah, some of that's glossed, though, but, isn't it? But but people do get it, these zeitgeists. They they do affect. Uh, they have very, very long and lasting effects. I agree with you. And I think, so I, what I'd look for is um, for, for a rejig to just value, maybe I want to talk about the pandemic in a second, mm. but the, uh, mm. uh, just, just to rejig things. So you might be better off, not only better off and happier, a more fulfilled, say, you know, brewing craft ale mm. than you would have been if you'd gone into pharmacy clicking, you know, in front of a, front of a, a computer all day. Mm. Uh, just more fulfilling, better life, yeah. actually. And you, you try, you, you know, actually you might not earn quite as yeah. much, but your colleagues... I, yeah, I think were, this is happening. I mean, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and some of it will be a kind of top-down thing. I yeah. Mean, that often the more privileged kids will say, oh, you know... I'll I, give I mean, that the flick. Why, why should I yes, go to university yes. any longer? Because actually, you know, I'm going to become a... Um, you know, a, a sort of artisanal baker or yes, whatever. Yeah. Um, well, it's always bakers of brewers, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Glut of bakers of brewers. No, I think you're right, but I just think that that could be very important. I mean, culturally, when people start writing about it, it, it comes back into the culture. It may rejig it a little yeah. bit. And I, think, I also think it's to do with measurement. I mean, you know, we, yeah. you know, the reason why the cognitive meritocracy has swept all before it is because it appears to be easy to measure. Yes. Yeah, we all read the same biology textbooks. We sit the exam... And assuming they're marked more or less fairly, you know, we're then put in what seems like a sort of fair hierarchy. Some people yes. are very good at it, some people aren't. It's much harder yes. to measure outcomes, but you know, even in manual technical things, although perhaps not quite so difficult there, but really difficult in caring. Mm. How do you value the mm. work of a, mm. a nurse who's just spent a shift on a geriatric ward, making the lives of some some very old people? A little bit less miserable. Yes, um, I mean it's yes. just very, very difficult to do. I mean, I know there are people in the NHS working on on how one does it, and this is one of the things. With my book is seen as part of this sort of spate of books writing a sort of a bit of critical of meritocracy. Mm. But I mean, I'm, uh, I'm an, and, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I am critical of meritocracy. In it's a little bit of a myth for a start. Well, I mean, I, I mean, the idea that you know if you turn society into a competition, the most able win, and, and most everybody else feels like a failure. That's obviously mm. not an ideal. Mm. But the but obviously everybody accepts. Even Michael Young accepted mm. that you have to have meritocratic selection yes. for jobs, particularly Airline top pilots, jobs, surgeons. Yes, exactly. You don't want to be operated on by a no. surgeon who failed no, his, his surgery <laughs> exams. No, no. Um, but you're right. I think a lot of these things are. are incommensurable to some extent and I think a lot of the hierarchies that we've put up are actually false and we're valuing things wrongly I mean I think mm. we, you see that in every uh, September or you know season when people go to university um, certainly the sharp elbowed rank all the universities absolutely judiciously and it's mm. you know mm. so you're and they think the relations are transitive so they think that you know, Durham is better than Exeter, which is better than Warwick. So therefore, mm. you know, Durham is better mm. than Warwick. It doesn't work. It shouldn't work. It doesn't. That's not no. real life. Well, we, except, I mean, there is, you know, I mean, status is always a kind of uh, a relative thing. There, there will always be hierarchies of mm. ability. And, you know, this is we also have to be realistic about this. You know, this is the point made, I think, by Nietzsche, you know, just mm. at the dawn of modern democracy. You know, he was pointing out that the democratic ideal, well, indeed, the Christian ideal, mm. that we're all that we're all equal morally equal, legally, politically equal, you know, runs up against the fact that we also have a huge range of different abilities. Aptitudes. Um, and different aptitudes. And, yeah. and so, I mean, I, you know, I don't think we can ever overcome that. Mm. Uh, you know, we will always, you know, value people who are, you know, who are better singers or, or better cricketers or whatever than, than less good singers and less good cricketers. But different people... But, but yeah. we can, at the very least, 
which is really what I'm asking for in this mm. book, is, is, is shift what we merit. I mean, yes. or not focus what we merit so much Solely. on one narrow yes. set of aptitudes, but, yes. but, but open it up to others. And this is why, you know, paradoxically, I'm actually arguing in a way for, for more meritocracy in areas like care. You know, if you ask an economist, why is it that people in, in, in care homes particularly are so badly paid, they'll say, because anybody can do it. Mm. And they're judging it by a cognitive standard. It's sort of not true, actually. It's not, of course it's, it's not, not true. true you know, you um, spend five or ten minutes in, a, in, a, in an old people's home or, mm. or a hospital, you know, like any Some of life, there are good carers, yes. there are yes. okay carers, and there are crap carers. Yeah. You know? but just and not, yet we don't differentiate. Yes, no, very good. I mm. think that's right. I, I think that's mm. right. You, you mentioned Nietzsche, so I'm going to mention A.J. Ayer uh, on, on an anecdote which is related to this. So he, you know, famous analytical philosopher and great writer, better writer than Russell, I think, actually, um, but was wrong about quite a few things. Um, uh, he, used to, he used to get taken up to see Spurs play by Martin Amos really? in the car. Right. And he's a, he's a smoker. And Amos would take him up in the car and, and AJ would stub his cigarettes out into the tape deck in the car when they had tape decks in cars uh, because he thought it was an ashtray. And that's an example of someone that obviously valued massively, you know, as an analytical philosopher, mm. great professor of logic at, at Oxford, but not terribly practical, because actually no. uh, some no. people wouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, can we finish? Just I want to talk about the pandemic, because you sort of must talk yeah. about that. And also, I wanted to try and take silver linings from it. It's an awful, mm. awful thing for humanity and for society. I think it'll have very, very long tail effects, this. But in thinking about silver linings mm. um, and thinking about rejigging, I think, obviously, there are silver linings. I think possibly... We might learn to value people that are key workers and also keep the basics going. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the moving things around. You know, yeah. the, we, we must value people more for that, and that might be a thing. Uh, I also think the hasn't the pandemic been a massive window of, of just possibility? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, you know, when when we collectively underwrite the incomes of, you know, however many 10 or 10 million workers, um, that's an extraordinary and almost unthinkable social democratic act. Yes. Um, but I think you're right too about, I mean, I think it's been quite a communitarian, in some ways, small C conservative mm. crisis. You know, the, mm. if you think of all the WhatsApp groups that have sprung up, you know, probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands all over the country mm. to support people. Volunteer in their, groups. Voluntary yeah. groups in, yeah. in their area. Mm. And, and, the, and, and just the, the, much, the recognition of our interdependence of our dependence on the people who are normally invisible. Mm. Uh, I mean, I don't mean so much the, the, the care of the nurses and the doctors, obviously, they, you know, they, they've been in the front line of it and, and they've received, but they were quite you know, high status, mm. um, reasonably well-paid people anyway. It's more mm. the, you know, the, the shelf stackers in the supermarkets, people that we just took for granted. Essential. Yeah, and, yeah. and so, you know, so many of those key workers, you know, yeah. obviously people without university Logistics. degrees. Yes. You know, van drivers, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. the, the people that drive the drugs to the, uh, mm. uh, to, to boots. Um, I mean, they were never paid enough, and they were never valued well, I mean, enough. They, but they, said, yeah. they, I mean, it depends, actually, because you made the point that nurses well, they, are rather well-paid, and actually, yeah. that's actually true. It's not yeah. very popular. Nurses actually. and teachers are actually... No, no, tra tra if you look at a trainee solicitor as against a nurse, actually, there's very little difference. Yeah, uh, you know, so they, they that's we do have quite high, we have quite high minimum wages. Uh, we have a quite high minimum wage in this country by international mm. standards. I mean, I'd like it to be a bit higher, mm. um, but I do think it's not just pay. about money. No. It is, it is also about recognition mm. that what you're doing is mm. purposeful and useful. You know, mm. part of the sort of chain of, mm. of being in our society. And mm. I think they, I think you know, people who worked in supermarkets did perhaps feel a little bit, not all of them necessarily, but I think 
you know, they, they felt that they were being sort of seen in a way, they were mm. being recognised in a way that perhaps they hadn't so much before. Mm. That's true. Uh, another, another thing which I'm, and I, I think you say in the book that we've got to be careful we don't see the pandemic through our prejudices and see that through that lens. But I think another thing, an adaptation, a rejig, which might come out of this, is an end or sort of hinge point in this awful sort of um, free trade liberalism indifference to what is made by whom and where, because mm. that has been a, a big problem, complete indifference to factory closure and domestic resilience and things. And I think, I just see the pandemic and I think surely we've got to uh, rejig towards what we've, what we've been saying, which is that it really does matter who produces things. And you've got to have, you've got, you've got to have a sort of a domestic bargain in this, which takes into account producers, not no, just consumers. Yeah, yeah, do you yeah. agree with that? No, yeah, I do, definitely. I mean, the, the idea that all people care about is the lowest price. possible price in Walmart. Um, no, actually, you know, people are producers as well as consumers, and you know, it, and if paying a little bit more for a, some, you know, electronic device in Walmart meant that that you know you actually had a decent skilled job in a factory, then obviously, you know, it's you, you, the the, the trade-offs have got to be looked at in the round, yeah. not, not just look at everybody as a consumer. And and I think you know this is. I mean, you know, sort of hyper-globalisation in Danny Roderick's phrase was yeah. kind of on the retreat anyway, even prior to the pandemic. Yes. Um, the pandemic has certainly um, underlined the virtue of domestic production, certainly things related to Resilience. pandemics yes. like yes. like PPE equipment and yes. so on. Um, so that, you know, that will, uh, I mean, I, th I suspect world, world trade will bounce back. I mean, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the 1930s and, and have global no. trade wars but no. uh, but I think you know a, a kind of modest retreat from globalization and, and, a, and, a, and a belief that it's not always stupid to produce things uh, at home even if they cost slightly more yeah I'm a big fan of Roderick actually I think he, he the, the language he uses the, yeah. the states uh, have to be sort of they have to be in a position to make sort of Keynesian uh, social and economic bargains which suit the, themselves mm. a little bit, a little mm. bit of flexibility mm. to make your own sort of bargain. So I think that's right. I think another really uh, encouraging thing is I think the young people, young people do get this. So um, I think if the future entailed your uh, your your chest of drawers, instead of having fifty cheap T-shirts, you might have five that were a bit more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, might mm. be made here, even I don't know about T-shirts, but you get the gist. Yeah. I think young people do understand this, the importance of. The environment and, and mm. you know, long supply chains, shipping stuff around the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, eating eating uh, vegetables in season. Exactly, and so it's all part you of the sort of it's, it's a slowing down. Yes, it's sort of you know getting yes. off getting off the hamster wheel in some yes. ways. I mean, I think yes. we you know a lot of us experienced that. Perhaps particularly middle class people who worked at home. Mm. You know, they kind of noticed the people around. They they got to know their neighbourhood better. And, yes. Um, you know, got to know some old lady up the road and. Yeah. took her for a walk perhaps I mean yeah, and, and that, that's all part of the same story in a way of, of yeah. kind of slowing down uh, getting a getting a sort really of better crazy. grasp on what is really important yes Fam um, yeah often family and friends and locality yeah so I'm, I'm let's end there David because I think we should end on a positive because it has been yeah. very difficult but I think there are immense opportunities looking forward in this readapt you know to, to, to look at what we do and to and to realize that we can sometimes we can things can change. And it's yeah. this awful Tina, you know, there's that Thatcherite thing, you know, the, the acronym Tina, there is no alternative. Well, you know, we'd yeah. argue for yeah. railway nationalisation <clears throat> might, cost, might cost six or eight billion quid a year or something. No, you can't do that. And suddenly, yeah. actually you can. If you want but to things do... change very, and things change very fast. Public mm. opinion shifts around. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that uh, opens up also, you know, just think about how 
you know, even at a more hard-headed level, think of the business plans of big corporations mm. over the last 20 years and how they've been, obviously some more than others, been hugely affected by, say, you know, concerns about the environment, mm. concerns about gender equality. Mm. Mm. I mean, you know, the, the, these things, you know, market signals do not exist sort mm. of separate from human priorities. And those priorities, you know, can and will shift. And I think one of the ways they will shift is in, is in shifting prestige and status more evenly across human aptitudes. And, that's, and that aspect is the other side. Again, you have public policy leading it, but I think there may be a natural orientation, reorientation happening as well. Mm. I think we, let's, let's, let's uh, end there and, and hope that, that that happens. Absolutely. But can I thank you also for being a friend to the party and what we've Absolutely. done over the last yeah, few yeah. years, because we're, we're growing and uh, you know, we, we are making progress steadily and you've always been a... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very happy. I mean, I, I hope you, fl you flourish. Uh, I think you're, you know, you're an important strand in British politics. Very kind. Thank you, David. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of STP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of STP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at stp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.